Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I knew I was stressed, and I knew I was very internally conflicted about what I had chosen to do with my life, but I didn't think I had any sort of mental health issue. But the panic attack happened one day at work, and it was very innocuous at the start. I came in, and I had a coffee, and my assistant came in, gave me a bunch of work, and then just was looking at me really weirdly. And she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then she looked at me, you know, a few more moments and then left. And as soon as she left, I felt my hands started to, to tremor. I felt my heart beat really, really quickly and almost instantaneously thought it was just the coffee. I'm like, well, strong coffee. But then I felt a swelling of emotion coming up and, you know, I felt like I was about to cry in the middle of my office. And that really started it. I remember running out and I was walking through the CBD of Melbourne, hyperventilating and at one point, I was in this little alleyway, just hunched down on my knees and on my feet, just thinking I was about to die. That started a whole chain of events. You know, I ended up developing an addiction to ADHD medication. I ended up developing chronic insomnia as well as a byproduct of that, and then developed an addiction to the medication to help me sleep. That moved into an eating disorder. That moved into a whole host of other ailments that kind of accompanied me for about 18 months to two years. Hello there. Welcome to At the End of the Tunnel. I am Light Watkins, your host. And if you are listening to At the End of the Tunnel for the very first time, I want to thank you for giving it a listen. So this is a podcast about hope and inspiration and stories about people who found their calling, which I think is something that we all sort of fantasize about, you know, finding our life purpose or to put it simply our why. And this week's guest has a backstory that I think a lot of us here in the Western world will be able to relate to because it's a story of being seduced by what I refer to as the acquisitive approach to happiness. In other words, it's the thinking that As soon as I make a certain amount of money or get promoted or have my first kid or find my soulmate, then I'm going to be truly happy. And, you know, once you live long enough, you discover that that's not really the whole story. Like there's nothing wrong with acquiring things and accomplishing things. But if you don't at some point tap into a greater sense of purpose within, your accomplishments are going to leave you feeling more or less empty. And eventually this leads us on a quest to discover just where that elusive happiness resides. Well, Manoj Diaz had the kid, he had an awesome job, he had the degrees, he had it all, and yet something still felt off. And that offness culminated into a panic attack at his high-paying job, which then spiraled into an 18th-month-long depression and insomnia and eating disorders and the occasional suicide ideation. And then one day, a new friend of his enticed him out to a yoga class, which 
ended up being a meditation class with the teacher who left such a big impression on Menashe that he went back the next day and the next day and basically every day for five years. And during that time, Menashe found what he'd been looking for all along, which was a connection to something real, as he witnessed his teacher help people in all kinds of life or death situations. And then one day, his teacher asked Menashe to teach, which, of course, he didn't feel ready to do, but his teacher insisted, and Menashe stumbled his way through his first class. And then after teaching several more times, his teacher instructed him to go out into the world and start teaching meditation. Well, Manash ended up opening up a meditation studio in Melbourne, where he happened to be living at the time. It was called A-Space, and it became this thriving donation-based meditation community where anyone could come and sit and practice and get the knowledge. And it lasted up until the pandemic, at which point it was acquired by an online meditation platform called Open, which Manash co-founded. And most recently, he's written a book on connection called Still Together, which came out on the same day that my book, Knowing Where to Look, came out, which is so cool. Anyway, what I've told you so far are the main plot points of Menage's path to becoming a meditation teacher and author and community leader. But what our podcast conversation does is it connects all those dots because too often we feel like our life is comprised of a series of random occurrences. And what we often learn later, and especially from hearing other people's stories, is how everything we experience is navigating us along our path and toward our purpose. And that's what I love about diving into Menage's story, how everything he experienced eventually led to where he is now, which is not just being successful, but feeling fulfilled, which I say is the real success. And that fulfillment often comes from being of service in some form or fashion. Now, before we get into the conversation, just want to remind you that I do have a book out called Knowing Where to Look, which is about inspiration. So if you're looking for some inspiration, Knowing where to look is where you want to look. These are personal stories, anecdotes, and observations that you can read in a choose-your-own-adventure sort of way, basically whenever you need a boost of inspiration or some additional perspective or whatever you're going through in life. This book was five years in the making, and the first printing sold out in three weeks, which I'm so excited about. So please don't wait to order yours. And if you haven't done so already, it's available everywhere books are sold. Okay, without further ado... Let us now dive into my conversation with Manoj Diaz. Manoj, thank you so much for coming on to At the End of the Tunnel. It is an honor. And I say this every time, it's an honor to interview you. But what I really mean by that is in preparation for these conversations, I will do some research. And even though you and I have a relationship, a friendship outside of this podcast, I don't get to know someone's story as much as I do when I do my little you know, research before an interview. So now I'm truly honored to talk to you about, about some of your experiences because there, there's a lot I didn't even know. And I'm curious to kind of fill in some of those gaps. So thank you very much for agreeing to come on to the show. Oh, life. You know, any time that you and I get to spend together is is always a lot of fun. And it's an honor to be on this podcast. And then you have some world-renowned meditation teachers and wonderful humans on here. So I feel very excited to be a part of that. Thank you. 
So anyone listening to this, they might hear your voice and your accent, and they may think, okay, this is some white guy from Australia. <laughs> but looking at you, anyone looking at you, especially in, in, in the West or in America specifically, would automatically, without hearing you speak, would automatically assume you are Black, probably from the hood somewhere, you know. So you're actually from Sri Lanka. You're Sri Lankan. Are you full Correct. Sri Lankan or are you part Sri Lankan? I don't know if I had this conversation with you, you know, when we caught up in Mexico City, but the truth is my my actual ethnicity, I'm in the process of, of finding out. I just mm-hmm. got a 23 in me very recently <laughs> after I found out after I found out a bit of a family secret dating back to my grandparents, in which, you know, I don't really know my biological grandfather. And so I could go into a lot more detail in that at, at some point, but I have grown up believing that I am, yes, born in Sri Lanka, raised in Australia, but there is a very good chance that I have a mixture of Portuguese and Ethiopian blood. So uh, I'm, I'm waiting to find out and I can come back for the big reveal if it, if it ends up being something exciting. <laughs> so talk, talk about your name. Is that a typical Sri Lankan name, Menash? So it's actually pronounced Manoj and it would was given to me by my auntie who was in love with an Indian movie star. I don't know what his surname is, but his his name was Manoj. And so my auntie lays claim to to giving me the name. And it's not an overly popular name in, in Sri Lanka, but doing some research in my early 20s, I found out that it means Prince of Hearts. So uh, mm. I'll take that. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. You grew up, well, at least until you were five or six years old, you grew up in Sri Lanka. Talk about what you remember from those early days, if you remember much. Of anything. 
You know, I have really fun memories of, of Sri Lanka. I was there until you're at about the age of six before I moved to Australia with my family. And I have such fun memories of Sri Lanka. We lived by the beach for a period of time. My dad was a director of a few hotels down south, which is, you know, a really popular tourist destination. And Sri Lanka is also a very deeply spiritual country. In particular, the major religion in, in Sri Lanka is Buddhism. And so from a very young age, I had the influence of, of Buddhism in my life. I remember the monks coming into our house every month to do what we call dane, which is an offering to those that have passed. They would chant, they would recite verses, we would meditate together. The head monk would then give a speech or a talk and talk about family and connection and it revolved around this Buddhist concept of sila, which is ethics, around living an ethical life. And I was always very fascinated by the monks. And it began from just observing them. You know, they had shaved heads, bald heads, and I was just like fascinated by their bald heads. They wore these beautiful, bright orange robes. Um, they always were very friendly to me and, and very kind to me. And so I was very fascinated by them. But it got to a stage where... My dad was actually quite concerned from a young age that I might actually want to become a monk. And, you know, in Sri Lankan culture and Buddhist culture from a young age, if a child shows an inclination towards Buddhism, a lot of parents would send them to the monastery and that would be it. They would be a child monk and grow up to be a full monk and that would be it. But my dad wasn't having any of it. I was his firstborn son and he's like, whenever we would drive in the car and I would see monks on the road. I would usually stand up, put my hands together in the prayer position and bow towards them. And he would yell at my mum to hide me, like whenever he saw monks coming. And I remember that story even, you know, last few months when I saw him and, and he would say that in front of all our friends. But I had a, a strong fascination with Buddhism and spirituality without really properly understanding it, you know, from a very young age. Was he sort of conflicted around what it meant to be a monk, what's wrong with you becoming a monk? If that's something that he brought into the house on a regular basis, and did these ceremonies and stuff, like why would that be such yeah. a bad thing for you, even as a firstborn son? Yeah. I mean, I think about it in terms of he would essentially lose his son because once you, you hand your child over to the monastery, and that would really be it. You could visit them maybe every month or every few weeks, but you wouldn't be raising a six-year-old anymore the temple would be raising a six-year-old. And so I think there was definitely attachment <laughs> around that for, for him. And, you know, Buddhism and, and Sri Lanka's relationship to Buddhism is, is very interesting as well because I think it's very much focused on the religious aspects of Buddhism in, in South mm -hmm. Asia, a, a lot of countries, not just Sri Lanka, like Myanmar and Thailand. And it's focused less on the practice of Buddhism. And what I mean by that is, there are so many different aspects to Buddhism that one can practice. One of the main ones is meditation. And Sri Lankans don't tend to practice a lot of meditation. What they tend to practice is a lot of what we call sila, which is ethical conduct. You know, So don't steal, don't harm, live in an ethical way, be wise in your actions. And, and that's beautiful and it's great. And it's something actually we, we forget in the West, You know that, that part of spiritual practice. But in, in Sri Lanka, we we tend to avoid the meditation component a lot. So I think, you know, for my father, it was it was probably very difficult to reconcile how virtuous it would have been for his son to go off into the temple and to become a monk with his genuine attachment and his love for his 
you know, firstborn son. And eventually it's just ironic that I ended up becoming a meditation teacher. I'm assuming that your dad worked in hospitality. Is that what initiated the move to the far north of Queensland? Yeah, it was that. And there was a war in Sri Lanka. There was a civil war. So I Mm -hmm. think for him, it was a chance of starting a new life, a chance of moving to a country that offered a lot of safety, which in that time, a lot of Sri Lankans moved to Canada, the UK and, and Australia. And my dad was always built for a Western country. You know, he's very charismatic. He's very charming. You know, by his own admission, he's very good looking, and he's a man of the world. You know, he, he traveled a lot, and he's he came from pretty astute parents and well-to-do parents. So he was always built to live in in a Western country, and and I think he wanted to really have his children be raised in an English-speaking country as well. So a couple of questions about that part of your life. You're now six, seven, eight years old living in Australia. Do you remember having a favorite toy or activity as a child? I used to play cricket a lot. And so for those that are probably listening in the in America, you're like, what the hell is cricket? <laughs> cricket is a pretty major sport for the rest of the world, especially <laughs> in England and, and South Asia. It's mm. similar to baseball where we, we hit a, a ball and we run around and we try and catch it. But I remember playing cricket from a very, very young age. I was very talented, actually. I would actually go on to play for my state at a pretty high level. And if I had more commitment to that, I I don't doubt that I probably could have played internationally and and professionally as well. But yeah, from a very young age, I was really fascinated by that. The other thing I was really into was dancing. I was obsessed with Michael Jackson to the point that I used to like religiously watch, I think it was Moonwalker, which was Michael Jackson's video at the time. Uh, It was like a movie. And I used to watch all his film clips and I used to get my mother to cut my pants short so I could wear white socks and then I would make sure the white socks would stick out of my pants. I would wear black shoes and I would walk to school or kindergarten at the time with a white glove. And that, yeah, I was obsessed with, with dancing and with Michael Jackson. And my dream was to be a dancer, actually, when I was young. But uh, that quickly got nipped in the bud by my parents. Do you remember what dancing would invoke for you? Was it a way to show off to your friends or just a way to have freedom of movement or... What was that? What what did you get from dancing, if you can recall? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think what is I reflect back on it now, I felt very in my body when I I danced and I was very confident, you know, when I danced. I I never doubted myself and I doubted myself in every other aspect of my (laughs) life for sure. But when I danced, I, I never felt doubt. I just felt a lot of freedom and I felt this deep sense of I'm home. I'm home in this body. Even to this day when I'm dancing, I, I genuinely feel that. I feel like I'm, I'm coming home. And I think I might have mentioned to you, like, one of my intentions this year was to dance more, you know, mm. to feel that freedom again because over the last two years, I, I really let that go. You said, you did mention that when we were hanging out, but I just thought that was just some offhanded comment about, hey, I want to move my body. I didn't know you were, like, you had a passion for dancing. <laughs> I, yeah, a deep, cool. deep, deep passion for it, for sure. I imagine the cricket also made you feel like you're in your body as well. Like you sound, sounds like you're pretty confident as a cricket player. I was confident, but I just didn't have the dedication to do it. You know, and to be any sort of professional athlete, you have to be really dedicated to, to the work. And 
I was lazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was very lazy as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So do you recall, and now we're speaking about your sort of early teenage years, do you recall any sayings, philosophies, or mantras that your dad or your mom would echo in your house growing up? Because you guys are immigrants, so obviously there's maybe a whole host of philosophies around, you know, you got to work really hard and that kind of thing. What were some of the sayings that you recall from that era? Well, I think some of them were healthy, some of them weren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the healthy ones, which also have a tinge of unhealthiness, is we are immigrants, so we have to work twice as hard. That was beaten into me from a very young age. We moved, I, you know, I gave up my life for you. <laughs> that was another one my dad used to always say. And, you know, he was very successful in Sri Lanka. He, he was a director of multiple hotels in the largest industry in Sri Lanka, which is tourism. And so, you know, there was a lot of pressure to perform. But there was always this feeling of family that I was surrounded by. And, you know, my, my parents have since divorced you know, in recent years. But there was always a sense of community and, and family that I, I was born into and then raised into. In particular, gr- growing up in you know, far north Queensland, which was our first stop when we moved from Sri Lanka to Australia, we didn't have much family or friends there. It was just literally my family. And it was a very rough, harsh climate for us as kids to grow up in. Me and my brother experienced a lot of racism, a lot of bullying, physical abuse, and just generally just feeling very isolated and alone. And it wasn't until we moved to Melbourne in Australia where we were surrounded by, you know, much more multicultural communities that my family really instilled to never forget your roots and to never forget how you were raised and what you were raised with. And when we moved to Melbourne was when, you know, we started to, to really get reintroduced into Buddhist practice in a different sort of way, you know, in, in obviously a community that was in Australia as opposed to in, in Sri Lanka. And I started to really feel more of a connection back to spirituality. And even though I went to Sunday school religiously for many years, you know, which is Buddhist school, it never really made sense to me until I was in my mid-20s. But I always felt this sense of obligation and duty, you know, and this sense that there is something larger than, than my existence at play here. And I didn't know whether to call it God. I didn't know whether to call it Buddha. I don't know. Like, I did, couldn't make sense of it in my own mind, even though I was taught about this stuff. But I did know that there was a certain level of moral conduct that I wanted to adhere to. And I wanted to show up in the world in a way that felt good and not just take and be nihilistic about it. You told a story in an interview that I heard of yours of how when you were young and your mom would make lunch for you, she would prepare this wonderful, aromatic Sri Lankan lunch, but you were ashamed of that. You wanted, obviously wanted to fit in. And so you would hide it. And I, I don't know what you would do instead, maybe eat a sandwich or something, but I'm curious in the midst of that, the shame that a young person can feel if you're not fitting in culturally. Did you have that one friend who did accept you or who got you, or were you completely an outlier in your community? 
Yeah, I think it was that. You know, it sounds really sad and morbid, but it really, when I talk about Australia and when I talk about, you know, growing up, it was isolating and it was a lonely place, you know, for an immigrant to really lay down roots, especially where we did. And yeah, I used to, I used to leave my lunchbox at home all the time. My mom used to get mad at that. And eventually she started making me like cheese and salami sandwiches because I just begged her. I said, I don't want to eat like five different curry bowls that I would mix at school. It was like a gourmet meal, which looking back now, I'd kill for. But yeah, (laughs) I I think this idea of moving through life, especially in your early teenage years or even younger than that, and really craving to be understood is not unique to me. And I desperately wanted to be understood and I desperately wanted to feel part of something especially because I look so different to everyone else, you know? And again, I did the idea of race wasn't a thing until I heard my first insult, you know, when someone teased me for the first time and they mentioned the color of my skin. It didn't even occur to me that I was different, but I could see it. Like I'm the only kid with like black skin in the whole, in the whole school of like 600 people. But I didn't have language for that. Until, you know, the, the, the racism started and then the language shifted. How did that affect you mentally as a young person, if you remember? As a young person, I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me uh, in all reality. Like I was being bullied. I was being teased. It was something that I couldn't change. I didn't see anyone that looked like me, so I couldn't fit in. So it was very probably looking back pretty traumatic you know it's something that i've had to unpack with the therapist you know over the years but i don't think as children sometimes you can understand that because i couldn't really even speak to my parents about it because you know for for them it was a very different experience so, you know i ended up speaking to my mum probably about 10 years ago i'm sorry no about 2 years ago and i'm like did you ever experience racism you know when when you were growing up sorry when when you moved to australia and for her, it was like, no, she didn't. And But she's like light-skinned, you know, and, and she can be, you know, passing as a Spanish person or a Greek person. And I think as, as immigrants, we're so used to accepting our experience instead of questioning our experience. There's a, a very submissive attitude to, to sometimes what we experience that I think our generation now can put words to it and they can push back against it and can call it out. But and definitely my parents' generation were very submissive to, to what we experienced. And especially culturally, Sri Lanka being a Buddhist country is they're not an angry nation. <laughs> like they will just smile and just, you know, shake their head. When you moved to Melbourne and you were reintroduced to Buddhism, was that something that you sought out as a high schooler or is that something that was like, you know, you kind of had to do it? Yeah, my parents made me do it. <laughs> they, they they took me and they were like, you should learn this. And they took me there primarily because they didn't want me to forget my culture. And they could see that I was trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible. You know, I, I wasn't eating the food out and thing. I wanted to dress differently. And I think for them, it was a way of somehow remaining connected to, to the island of, of Sri Lanka and to the, the roots of, of our family. But it wasn't anything that I took really seriously. Like I listened to beautiful stories, some that have stayed with me over the years, but it wasn't something that I all of a sudden clicked and it was like, yes, this is my life path. It was just something that my parents made me do. I'm imagining in that 
Sri Lankan culture also, people tend to get married young and have children young. You end up having a child at, was it 19? Uh, Obviously 18, not, not on purpose. You're 18. Yeah. So talk about that experience and how that changed your life. You know, I was in a relationship mm-hmm. for, for seven years with, with my daughter's mother. And obviously at the age of, of 18, none of us planned to have a child. She was my first love. And when it happened, it didn't even occur to me that I had options, if I'm being really vulnerable and, and open right now. It just occurred to me that, okay, this is what we're doing. Like, how can I be a good father? And I wanted to be a good father and, and provide the way that my dad had, you know. And I mentioned earlier on, like, family was so important to our dynamic as, as a culture and as an identity for, for me and, and my family. And so I wanted to instill that. I wanted to be a good father. And, you know, I tried everything to, to do that. And, I'm, and I feel really proud of who I was back then. You know, a lot of messing up, but I had the, the foresight and I had some really good role models around me that showed me what a father could be like. And so I took responsibility and, and you know, we stayed together for, for many years and we raised a really beautiful young woman now. But it was very hard. It was very hard. Like my, my friends were in college, they were partying, going out, taking drugs, nightclubs. And, you know, I would be home changing nappies on, on Saturday nights. And it never felt like I was missing out. But when we eventually separated when I was around 23, 24, I realized how much I had missed out on in my life and, and how I had this yearning to explore and get to know myself. And so I did that. Prior to the news that you were having a child, right? What did you want to be? What did you see yourself becoming? How did you define success in the world at that 18-year-old stage of life? Well, I knew the definition of success was equated with money and security. That was what was embedded into my psyche. It's like be a doctor or be a lawyer or be a businessman or be an engineer, and I remember my first love was to be a dancer. Like that quickly was not an option for my parents. My second option was to be a fashion designer. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I want to create beautiful fashion because I always had a real penchant for, for clothing. And, and my mother sat me down and she's like, no, you can't do that because, you know, how many people make money off that? And again, it was very narrow thinking, but, you know, this is how she was raised as well. So I don't blame her for that. So um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just know I had to do whatever I did really, really well. And it was likely going to be in business because that was the most vague uh, university degree I could get at the time. So I had my I had my sights set on that, you know, and then my final year of, of high school, obviously I had Taylor. And so I didn't end up going to college until many years later. I started working straight away. I started working at a bank, at a branch, actually. That was my my first job and it was humbling but the motivation was I was now looking after a child so be humble and and work hard (laughs) was my motto at that point were you good at it working at a branch or was it literally just an ends to a means to an end no it was it was probably both like I never saw myself staying at a branch (laughs) working at a bank but I ended up working at this bank for about eight nine years actually like Mm. I was there for 
a while and I worked my way up actually to being a marketing director, you know, which was a really pivotal moment in my life as well, knowing I could do that. But I loved people and I got to meet people a lot. I got to, to see people. I got to connect with people. I got to listen to people. I got to to be human and I got to see different versions of people. So that part of my job was really fun. I can't say I had a very strategic mind at that age or I was very analytical, but I definitely enjoyed the other the other aspects of of the role. Had you reached sort of a ceiling in terms of your growth in that industry? Is that why you went back to school? Because eight years is some significant experience. Yeah, I think very early on I was really interested in marketing because it became I looked at, you know, I looked at the bank and I was working for Australia's biggest bank at the point. And I'm like, what is the most creative job I could do right now? And it was marketing and advertising, right? Because I, I do have a mind that's a lot more creative than it is analytical. And I was definitely not going to do financial planning or going to you know business banking or anything like that. So it sounded cool was my my motivation for, for going back to, to college and, and to doing uh, marketing. And I ended up doing a master's in, in, in marketing and utilized that for a few years and then gave that up as well. What did you learn in the graduate program in marketing that you didn't know after eight, nine years of working in that banking position in marketing? I, I just learned, I think, in the first semester that this is not who I wanted to be. This is not what I wanted to do. And I actually felt very depressed during that that course because I'm like, well, what is my life? Like, what am I going to do with my life if this is what I'm somewhat good at? I have a child to look after. I kind of resigned myself to the fact that, okay, well, you know, this is this is my life. Like, everyone doesn't get to choose. And yeah, I mean, thanks to that probe because I'm reflecting on that now. And, and that's what was there. I was like, okay, that's this is it. I guess I'll just see my days out working for the man. Um, <laughs> and I think it's it's similar to what a lot of probably our students come to us with these days. It's like they don't realize the world is more expansive than than we think it is. And I genuinely thought this would this would be my life, you know, and, and that's it. So I learned very early on it wasn't for me, but I stuck with it because I didn't think I had options. Well, it sounds like it fit into the model of success that you had been indoctrinated into. But at the same time, with the child and all that, your practices, your Buddhist practices fell by the wayside. And you mentioned that you would begin burning the candle at both ends. So talk about that moment of realization that this is not sustainable. That was when I was, I completed my, my course and I was, you know, a marketing director at the time for an insurance company. And I had just begun a long distance relationship. I was managing five staff. It was at that point, the most lucrative job that I was in. My dad would tell me constantly how proud he was of how I turned my life around at that point. And burning the candle at both ends really meant I was working really, really hard, working out really, really hard because I was obsessed with how I looked back then. And you know, me and all my friends would go to the gym after after work and became a thing. And then 
because I was in the marketing and kind of finance world, on Friday and Saturday nights, we would go and like smash ourselves. Like literally we would we would just drink and you know it was it was pretty gnarly how we would just do that week in and week out. And and that became our version of release or fun. And it was pretty constant. And I saw, you know, I was the youngest, obviously, at this point. All the guys and, and, and ladies in my team were much older than me. And they were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And they were doing this too. And I'm like, okay, so this is my life. Again, I would say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a job that I'm in a career that I'm not 100% passionate about. And on the weekends, I go and drink and we have laughs and feel bad. And then I back it up the next week. And this is it. I'm like, okay. And and I didn't have, again, another version of that, another version of what could be possible to see. So life was very one-dimensional at that point. And eventually I, I had a pretty serious panic attack at work. And leading up until that, I didn't think that I had anxiety. I didn't think I had any sort of, I knew I was stressed and I knew I was very internally conflicted about what I had chosen to do with my life. But I didn't think I, I had any sort of mental health issue. And, and back then in those years, we don't we never spoke about mental health. You know, if you had anxiety, there was something seriously wrong with you. You had like, you know, even the mere mention of seeing a therapist, you were like, whoa, did you hear? Why don't you sing it? It was like that, you know, it's it was wild. But the panic attack happened one day at work and it was very innocuous at the start. I came in and I had a coffee and my assistant came in, gave me a bunch of work and then just was looking at me really weirdly. And she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then she looked at me, you know, a few more moments and then left. And as soon as she left, I felt my hands started to, to tremor. I felt my heart beat really, really quickly and almost instantaneously thought it was just the coffee. I'm like, well, strong coffee. But then I felt a swelling of emotion coming up and you know, I felt like I was about to cry in the middle of my my office. And that really started it. I remember running out and I was walking through the CBD of Melbourne hyperventilating. And at one point I was in this little alleyway, just hunched down on my knees and on my feet, just thinking I was about to die. And um, I called up my therapist at the time and I'm like, I think I'm about to die. <laughs> and she's like, you better come and see me then. And I went and saw her and you know, bless her, but she spent maybe 20, 30 minutes with me and said, I think you have ADHD. And that was a diagnosis. And then the prescription was medication. And that started a whole chain of events. You know, I ended up developing an addiction to uh, the ADHD medication. I ended up developing chronic insomnia as well as a byproduct of that and then develop an addiction to the medication to help me sleep that moved into an eating disorder that moved into a whole host of other ailments that kind of accompanied me for about 18 months to two years you and, saw um, a couple of other doctors as well to get second and third opinions and they all diagnosed yeah. you with something different correct 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 yeah so you know one said i had depression and i took SSRIs for about two weeks and then was just completely out of my body and, and stopped that. I went to a shamanic healer because I'm like, I can't hurt. You know, I'm trying all these different things. One said, I'm just stressed out and just the rest. And I don't say all of this to denigrate 
the the profession at all. I think, you know, I've got a tremendous therapist right now that's been a lifesaver. But I also think back then we didn't understand a lot like we do now for sure. And we tend to be oftentimes very quick with numbing and trying to fix the the, the problem instead of trying to really understand the, the problem. Were you sneaking around going to see these healers and doctors or did your drinking buddies on the weekend know that you were going through this this uh, no, process? After, after I had that panic attack, I, I didn't, I became a recluse. I didn't see any of my friends. I couldn't work. I literally didn't work for, for 18 months to, to two years. I was living off my savings. And Does that mean you literally quit your job? You told them I can't come back yeah. to work? Yeah. Yeah. And they just said, okay. No, they were like, why? <laughs> and, and, you know, tried to, to get me to come back. But I, I just couldn't, is the reality. Like, I, my mind was pretty, pretty fried at that, at that point. Yeah, I, I did go to different therapists. And I probably wasn't as committed to one because intuitively I felt like this isn't right for me. You know, even the lady that I saw that gave me ADHD, I saw her for like 12 months. And the whole time I'm like, I don't think. I don't think I have this. But then, you know, back then, what would, what do I know? This lady's gone to college and she's skilled and highly recommended and I'm just going to trust her. So, yeah, that was a scenario for a long period of time. You were taking Xanax to go to sleep, which you developed an addiction to. You were on Ritalin during the day to stay awake, which you were also addicted to. Your mom came in. You were living with your brother, I believe, at a certain point. Your dad was sending you money, right? Is all this, this is all correct. Yeah. At what point, like, did you realize you were addicted or did someone around you say, Manaj, Manaj, excuse me, you need to do something about this. This is not cool. No, I, I knew I couldn't, I couldn't really function. And the thing with those particular sub uh, drugs is not that they, I didn't take them because it made me feel good. I had to take Xanax to fall asleep. And when I didn't sleep, and there would be countless times where I would take a whole tablet of Xanax and not sleep, you know, it was, it was that bad, the, the insomnia. For me, I never took it recreationally to have fun and go out and party. It was just like, I can't actually function without, without these things. So at, at a certain point, I stopped taking Ritalin, but I was still taking Xanax because that was the only way I was able to go to sleep, you know, and, and to wake up. And it wasn't until, obviously, and we'll get to that part, that I met my teacher, that things started to change. But it also disassociated you from your body, which is something we all know now from hearing this, this much of your story, you really don't like, that you can't tolerate right. it. And you started right. having suicidal ideations. What stopped you from taking that more seriously? Two things. One was my daughter. Just the idea of someone having to tell her was very heartbreaking for me. The other thing was that there was that there was someone watching over me. And, you know, I didn't know again if it was Buddha or God, spirit, consciousness. But I'm like, there is a world outside of this. And I started praying and I didn't know who I was praying to. I remember at one point I was just like, every night I would go to sleep and just ask to be better and to look out and for, you know, life to look after my my child and my family and my friends. And yeah, prayer became like a very central practice to me. Looking back at that 
period of your life with your mom, your brother, your dad around, right? And which is the benefit of coming from this sort of family-oriented society. And your your daughter, who is an accidental addition to your life, ended up inadvertently saving your life, possibly. Is there anything that you found that your associates or friends or your even your family were doing that helped you in hindsight to get through this period? And is there anything that they were doing that may have been in unintentionally harming you more or saying during that time? Yeah, I think it's it's such an interesting question when you consider what it was like 16, 17, maybe 18 years ago versus now. I think now we have a lot more understanding around mental health and we talk about it more openly, right? It, it's not something that's riddled with shame when someone says I'm anxious. It's almost your everyday vernacular now. That's a language. But back then, it was very strange. And again, for, for immigrant families, you just don't talk about these things. You know, it's like when I said I'm, I might be depressed, and I was like, what do you got to be depressed for? You've got everything you want. <laughs> Snap <laughs> out of it. <laughs> right. Snap out of it. And I, I don't shame them at all for that language because they never were educated on, on how, to, how to navigate that themselves, right? But I think what I experienced with my mother and subsequently my teacher was compassion, you know, and, and that was really what began to transform my, my life. My mother... And we have a love-hate relationship at uh, the best of times, like I'm sure a lot of people do. She just came from Hong Kong where she was living and just cooked for me every day. A lot of the time I wouldn't eat because I just couldn't, you know, but she would just cook for me every day. She'd make my bed every day. She'd just be there, you know, and, and that is just tremendously precious and sweet. And it's the love of a mother, obviously a love of a parent. But just knowing that she was there in the house, felt very healing because prior to that, while I was going through a lot of these problems, I was living by myself. You know, my parents were living in, in Hong Kong at the time. So just to have them around, just to know that someone was there caring for you was, was really special. And then later on, my teacher, for sure. Yeah, because 18 months is significant. That's a significant amount of time. Like if you have a friend who's being reclusive for that long, there are few people who can be compassionate in that situation like that. Because eventually you would start to think, well, just, you know, come on, man, you're, you got everything, you know, you got so much to, but that's oftentimes the wrong thing to say if you're really trying to hold space for someone like that. So yeah. this friend of yours that eventually was successful in getting you out of the house was he one of your old drinking buddies? Was he a new friend who was into like Buddhism? Like where did he come from and how did you, how did you know this person? Yeah, he was actually a very, very new friend that we had just vaguely crossed paths with. And it was on Facebook. He sent me a message and he's like, <laughs> hey, let's, let's go check out this, this studio. And he sent me a video of the studio and the video had my teacher who was a Sri Lankan man. And he was young. He looked honestly younger than me. And I'm like, strange. But he had this really thick Sri Lankan accent. And just the way he was speaking, just something about it was very, he just spoke to me. And I felt at that moment, it's like coming home. Like I heard that accent. 
I saw this guy, he's talking about suffering and all these different elements of, of life. And I'm like, ah, oh, this feels like it could be something really good. And the funny story is I actually messaged him on Facebook, oh, sorry, on, on email. And I'm like, hello, these are all my problems. And I listed them all down. I didn't even know what came over me. You know, I'm just like, I just thought he should know. And again, up until this point, I thought it was a yoga studio. So maybe, he, you know, he thought like this posture would be good for me or something. And he replied back with just saying, I've been waiting for you. Come on Thursday. And um, how, how long did it take him to reply back to your message? About two hours. And I, I, I assumed my friend had mentioned something to him, but I later found out he hadn't at all. So it was one of the many spooky things that I experienced with him, but I definitely think it was very karmic, our connection. Did your friend know you were going through all this emotional, psychological, spiritual problem? I think so. I, I think he assumed. I wasn't very good at talking about my feelings, you know, and maybe a lot of people listening to this can relate, <laughs> especially as men, but I wasn't very good at, at being open with a lot of my friends. Like I didn't explain to them the depth of what I was going through. I just said, you know, a lot of the time I was like, oh, I'm just going through a lot, a hard time. You know, I'm just sick. Those would be some of the things that I would say. I would never really open up about what I was going through. And that was part of the problem in, in retrospect, right? But that was my, my way of handling those things. It's just so interesting that this person you barely knew was able to intuit that this is something that could potentially help you and then was able to persuade you to come out of your cave and introduce you to this person. So let's cut to the studio. You meet your teacher for the first time and, and you were, you had mentioned the feeling you had earlier. Can you just talk a little mm. bit more about, about that? Yeah. I, I rarely believed in things like this prior to me experiencing it, but there was something really magical about seeing this teacher for the, for the first time in which I looked at him and I'm like, Oh, I've seen you before. Mm. Like it's just a very familiar feeling. And that didn't feel woo at the time at all. But as we're going through the class, it quickly became evident that this wasn't like a normal yoga class. This was very much like Dharma talk and meditation and some gentle movements. It was like he was seeing into my experience and telling me exactly what I needed to hear. And the first thing is that suffering is inevitable. And I felt like I was hearing that again for the first time. Like, you know, he's like, we're all going to suffer in this life simply by being born. And I was like, huh, interesting. Then he's like, you know, don't identify with your suffering. And then I was like, you are not your thoughts. And when he said that, there was something, again, pretty incredible that happened. It was like it snapped me out of a dream because at that moment, I noticed I was having all of these thoughts and I became consciously aware of it. One thought was, you're never going to get well again. Another thought was, you know, you're a terrible father. How are you going to make a living? What are you going to have for lunch? Like all of these random thoughts were going on. And I realized at that very moment he said that, that I could observe these thoughts without actually becoming each thought. And up until that point, I was thrown around, yanked around by every thought that I had. 
And that was really interesting for me. And I think that was the hook that got me to come back the next day and the next day and the next day. But I remember that evening when I went home, I had one of the best sleeps I've ever had. And I'm like, whoa, this is <laughs> this feels addictive. So I want to feel this well rested again. So I came back the next day and actually practiced with him every day for five years. You had blown through all of your savings, I'm assuming, after 18 months. How were you able to afford to, what, what was the cost to come back to this class? Was it a donation or did he take pity no. on you? Yeah, so I could afford to pay for about six months with him. Mm -hmm. And then he was just like, you pay me back when, when you can. And that was it. And he didn't take money from me for about four years. And every now and again... And I started to work after the first you know, two, three years. But when I started to work, I, I paid back the money. But yeah, he, he really supported me in many ways. At one point, I lived with him as well, you know, because I got really sick before I got really better. And yeah, he let me stay with him for about six months. And I helped him on the land. Like he led his beautiful sprawling house. I gardened every day. I cleaned the yoga studio, sorry, the meditation studio, which was in his house. It was a small you know, studio and I mopped the, the mats and cleaned the cushions and helped him with his marketing. It felt like a, an actual ashram in, in India at one point. Was he more of a boutique type of teacher that you had to know someone to know someone to get in his circle yeah. or was he like a big name in Melbourne that everybody knew? No one knows about him, not even now. <laughs> um, but he, like I, in, in that time I was with him, I genuinely saw maybe about six people not commit suicide because of being in not just his presence, but being in that community. Mm -hmm. I saw people whose marriages were broken, healed. I saw one lady who was given six months to live from cancer have like spent nine years in that community and became such a pillar of that community. There was just something about this practice and the emphasis on compassion and community that really transformed so many lives. A large part of it was, was because of him as well. You know, he wasn't a big name teacher. His name is Chanda Dasanayake for anyone that's listening to this that wants to find say it, out. Say it a little it. slower. First name is Chanda and his surname is Dasanayaka. His teachings have evolved and I'd be happy to share about that now. But he became so many people's parents, you know, in, in, in a very weird turn of events. And what I learned from him was compassion. That was the first thing that I learned from him. I learned how to be with my pain and my suffering. It's been my hardest lesson, what I'm still working on. And he taught me generosity. and. When I was in service, when I was helping him, when I was giving without expecting anything in return, my life was so full. He took me to Bali for a retreat and I would be the helper and literally would do everything on, on that retreat. And all I had to do was pay for my flight. People from all around the world would come and study with him. And every day I would work for like 12 hours, you know, on top of doing this retreat, which is tremendously hard. It was a mix between Vipassana and gentle movements and things like that. It was so mentally difficult. I would then have to mop the whole studio after every sitting. So there was four, three sittings a day. I would sweep it. 
I would go and get him his tea. I would make sure the flowers were arranged. And it was so mentally hard. The first four days on that very first retreat, I was like, I've had it. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I'm tired. Like, why do these women who are also in his group get to do just hang out with you and have tea? And here I am cleaning and like mopping and like dusting. And it became what I needed to learn. It was like a, mm. it was, it became my way of understanding my ego and how tightly it holds onto entitlement and how tightly I don't want to work hard for what is, you know, really true for me. And those lessons, even as I'm speaking to you now, and I haven't spoken about this for a long time. So thank you for asking. As I reflect on these teachings, I'm like, I'm getting chills because I was so happy. Mm. I was so happy because it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me at at all. Like I was just doing this for the benefit of everyone else. And in turn, by the end of that retreat, I just felt full and it kind of mm. snuck up on me. You know, it's like, oh, look at all these people, you know, smiling at me. And, and I felt their love and admiration because they saw me working hard every day. But I also saw them go through their own evolution on retreats and it just gave me a lot of joy. I was just writing about this earlier today about it's a cliche, but it's so true. When the, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? And the work, the so-called work is about making yourself a worthy student because some people may hear that description of you, you know, mopping floors and think, oh, he's just treating you like a slave. But really, it's about dedicating yourself to a level of service that opens you up to be able to receive that compassion, to be able to receive that knowledge. And it's, there's something really, there's a really beautiful alchemy that occurs organically that you don't even realize is occurring until mm. it already fills you up. And you're just like, wow, I'm just so connected to everything. Cause I've essentially had to transcend the thing that was keeping me disconnected and disembodied, which is my ego. And yeah. so it's a beautiful I, description. I, no, I really love that reflection light. And I think, you know, in the West, we're so used to instant gratification, right? Mm. When we go to a teacher, we're like, Hey, light, Manoj, teach me something. I want to learn this. I want to learn mm-hmm. how to stress less. Teach mm-hmm. it to me. And, you know, a lot of us, we have these things that we can give to people. But some of our teachers, you know, I know you and I had very old school traditional teachers. They wouldn't do it like that. They wouldn't just give it to you like that. I had to study for 10 years before my teacher would even consider me mm-hmm. a teacher. But the way he taught me was through experience. Yeah, the quickest way to turn a true teacher off is to tell them how to teach you. <laughs> right, right. Give me this and give it to me now. And, you know, our culture loves that. But there's something really profound and, and sacred in observing my teacher. I, I learned 90% just by observing him. 10% was what he actually sat down and taught me. He, he rarely did that, actually. You know, these nights on retreat, at about 11 o'clock, once everything was cleaned up, would go to his room. And he would just talk. And I would sit there for hours just listening to what he said. Yeah, I had a very similar experience with my teacher. I I would help set up and break down rooms and, you know, kind of be the servant, play the servant role. Mm. And I just loved it. I couldn't get enough of it because it allowed me to be close in proximity to the knowledge. And I remember some of the axioms that he would say, such as nature's rejection is nature's protection. Mm-hmm. And you don't expect a mango to fall from an apple tree. 
and, you know, things like that, that I still draw from today. And it helps to give me perspective. What were some of the axioms or sayings that your teacher would echo in addition to you're not your thoughts? Was there anything else that kind of stands out today that you still think about? Yeah. I mean, his favorite was witness. He would just say that witness. <laughs> like, what? like, I'm like, oh, I'd go to him on retreats, especially I'm like, teacher, I'm feeling like, I called him Guruji. Guruji, I was, I was feeling, you know, last night I was thinking about my ex-girlfriend and, you know, <laughs> like I'd usually be on retreats with heartbreak actually, which was funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'd have these really dark thoughts and I'd be there just sad and broken and he'd look me in my eyes and he would just say, just witness, you know, and I hated that because I wanted a more profound answer. <laughs> Only now do I understand how profound that really is, right? And what he was really teaching me was to just observe this experience and not get caught up in it. But, you know, I wanted a more clear answer. I wanted something to do. And he here was inviting me to work. Just witness means work. I don't want to work. Just tell me how to get rid of these thoughts. <laughs> how long would you say it took you to kind of come back to yourself from that very broken aspect of yourself when you first met him that first day to you walking out of there feeling like a me again? Yeah, I think uh, six months. Uh, well, six wow. months. Six months was when I was off all medication. I wouldn't say I, I came back to me until probably like a year after that. But the me I came back to was a me I never knew. Mm. It wasn't like the old me. It was a very different me. It was a me that, you know, when I eventually went back to work in the corporate world, I did that for six months and I hated it. And I was killing my job. Like I was so good at it. I was making more money than I'd ever had. I was having a lot more fun in one way because I was more creative. But it just felt very empty, very soulless. Mm -hmm. Like I was you know, marketing, I think, electricity at that point. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like here I am spending my nights with my teacher and people are, you know, transforming their lives. And, and here I am <laughs> marketing energy. Like, dude. So it became very clear at, at that point, like I I have to take control of my life at some point. And I didn't know what I wanted to do still. I didn't even think about becoming a teacher. It wasn't in my life goals or my path. I just knew I didn't want to do this. And I remember asking my teacher within the first three times I saw him. Uh, and I'm like, what, what am I? I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. You know, I feel very lost. And he said, I think you're going to teach people. And I'm like, <laughs> no way. Like, it just seemed like the most unglamorous job at that point because my teacher didn't make much money. You know, he wasn't interested in clothes and he wasn't interested in, you know, fun things and experiences like, you know, I was at that age. And I just was he was he a robe wearing teacher or was he did he dress kind of normally? He he did both. He did both. He wore robes like on retreats and sometimes at class, but mainly he just wore really simple clothes. You Mm -hmm. know, Um, so if you saw him out on the street, you wouldn't know that he was a. You wouldn't know if you didn't have the awareness to kind of read his karma, you wouldn't know that he was a teacher. Probably not. No, probably not. He looks younger than me now and he's probably in his 50s now. Yeah. So I didn't want to, to do teaching. I never thought of it. And then it actually came around because I started dating a yoga teacher at one point. 
and I wanted to impress her, who you actually met when we were in Venice, you know, that, mm-hmm. that one time. And um, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll impress her if I do a yoga teacher training with her. And I didn't like teaching yoga. I actually hated it. But I said, um, I'll spend more time with her. And I came out of that and I realized I was actually really good at teaching yoga. But I just didn't like the practice because it was so physical. And I remember telling my teacher, hey, I'm, I'm, I've been asked by this studio to teach yoga. And he's like, oh, good, good. Because he wouldn't let me. He said, you have to practice with me for 10 years until I can even consider you ready of being a teacher. And at that point, it was eight, uh, seven years, I think it was, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll teach yoga then. And I taught yoga for a while. But one day as I was spending my time with my teacher, I came to do his class like I would every day. And he said, hey, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling well. Can you teach tonight? And I'm like, <laughs> what? I'm like, like, no, like I haven't prepared because, you know, I used to go to yoga class with these books full of sequences right. and quotes. Well, and what like would that. that mean, though, for you to teach? Give a Dharma talk for 15 minutes and then guide a meditation? Yeah. Or what, what would that look like? Exactly that. Yeah. You know, in, in the Buddhist context, it was give a talk for a period of time and, and then lead a practice. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, 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 I was like that. And he said to me, I'll only ever ask you once mm. for this opportunity. It's either yes or no. And he said it like that. And I'm like, wow, that's very I'm strong. Like, it's very strong. And I'm like, and I also didn't want to let my teacher down, you know, and, mm. and I knew he was sick. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And it was in his house, don't forget, right? So I go in there and I'm like nervous and I started writing some stuff down and he takes the book away from me. He's like, don't ever prepare for a meditation class ever. Wow. And I'm like, <laughs> so I go in and I tried to emulate him because what he would do is for the first minute, he would just close his eyes. He would like meditate or just, you know, connect with guides or whatever it was. And then he would teach his class, usually with his eyes closed. So I go in there trying to emulate my teacher, eyes closed, trying to like, nothing's you know, coming. <laughs> right. nothing's coming. And I open my eyes and I see my teacher sitting next to me. He's in class doing the class. And I'm like, oh, shit. As if you weren't already nervous enough. <laughs> it just really like, you know. And then I just went in. Uh, I just went into my practice. And then I just remembered all the times I, I used to practice with him. And I would practice often with my eyes closed, just feeling into the moment. And I just let go of the mind. And I just let whatever came out, came out. And it was a great class. It was a great first class in practice. And I think I spoke about just coming home to the body. I think that was probably my first class and and what I spoke about and and observing nature, I I think, was another thing I brought up. And obviously, I went to my teacher straight after the class. I'm like, how was it? Was it good? And he was like, okay. (laughs) It was like that. Um, But then he asked me to teach two more times and he used the same excuse. I'm sick. I can't do it. I'm tired today. And he sat in on those classes. And then at one point he's like, I think you're ready to teach. And I'm like, wow. And what that meant for me was I was ready to give myself to this career. But what I didn't do is think it through because I was like, okay, I'm going to be a teacher now. So I quit my job and it was a six-figure salary, you know, it was really great. 
And I just, without any plan, just said, I'm going to teach. So I would teach like three to four yoga classes. And then I would go to my meditation studio with my teacher, which was so tiny. I would teach three or four classes there. And I made $30,000 that first year. You know, and I think for the first two years, it was around that. You said earlier, you said you wanted to take control of your life, right? But from the outside looking in, you were already making six figures. So in the sort of conventional mindset of what success is supposed to look like, you already had, you were in control of your life. You had means, you had resources, you had a network. But what you were talking about was connecting with your internal self, your spirit, right? And so even though you only made $30,000 in this first year, you were now sort of living your dharmic path, which is a different quality of experience than going to a six-figure job that you don't feel connected to. I agree. And I think, you know, I have done a lot of research for my book on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and I've been reflecting on that a lot. And this sense of purpose and community, I think it's just almost as important as food. Honestly, mm. I, I think it's just so critical. Spiritual nourishment. Yeah. Spiritual nourishment, because that was what I didn't have. I didn't have, I had friends. Sure. I would go and do stuff with them, but I didn't have like a community, you know, a, a group of people looking towards the same direction, working towards it, helping each other get there. And I didn't have a sense of purpose. Like I was just coming to work every day and doing this thing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that for anyone listening. Like your purpose can be your children and your work can be a means of supporting them. Your purpose can be what's outside of work and the money you make and your nine to five can support that. But for me, I felt very confused and lost in that experience because even though I was okay at doing what I was doing, I just never felt connected to it. I'm like, this cannot be like what I do for the rest of my life. And so, yeah, that those first few years where I was making very little money and, and keep in mind, Buddhist meditation teachers usually operate under dana. So dana means generosity, which means usually people would give donations. So you wouldn't really even get paid for classes. A lot of my money mm -hmm. came from the yoga classes that I was teaching and then the random workshops I did here and there. So it was... It was an interesting time and it was also probably the happiest time of my life. If I look back, you know, I was very fulfilled. Your teacher, did he teach from more of a uh, eclectic tradition, Buddhist tradition? Is something that he kind of put together or was there a sort of a more strict, rigid, like ceremonial, you have to do this, you have to do that in order to teach properly? Because later on, you open up a space, which is a secular, non denominational meditation space. And sometimes that could be a little bit of a conflict for people who come from a very traditional path. Yeah. He was a, a Theravada Buddhist monk. That was his mm -hmm. formal sort of background. But and, and I learned a lot of Theravada Buddhism from him, in particular, a central text to that, which is known as the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. But over the years, he started to really broaden his lens, which is something I really admired about him because he was very receptive, you know, to, to other, other traditions and, and other ways of practicing. And he would always see the, the interconnection between 
you know, Islam, for example, and, and Buddhism and some of the things that they intersected on. And secular mindfulness was something that he, he brought in a lot into, into our classes. Because keep in mind, like, he didn't have all Buddhists in his class. He had a lot of different, you know, people from different walks and backgrounds. And so when I opened A-Space, like, the first person I asked for his blessing was him. And he mm-hmm. came and he did a, a Buddhist ceremony to help me open the space. He was very supportive of everything that I did. Okay, so let's talk about that. You're making $30,000 a year. How do you afford to open up your own meditation studio? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, it took to me and my my co-founder at the stage, we both took out two credit cards. Wouldn't recommend that. We both asked our parents, <laughs> both asked our parents for money and they generously gave us money. And we opened it up with the most shoestring of budgets. And it really started because we were doing pop-up events. You know, we would borrow someone's cafe and run this event around and we talk about fear and we talk about how meditation and Buddhist practice can help us navigate this. Or we'll talk about heartbreak. And it started to have a bit of a cult following in Melbourne. People were like, who are these cool young dudes like dressed like this, talking about subjects like this? And we would get 50 to 100 people at some of these events. Is this someone you met through your teacher's community or is this someone else you connected with in your yoga teacher training? No, just someone that came to a yoga class one day and and a mutual friend introduced us. It's like, hey, you guys should talk to each other because at that point I had started thinking about if I'm going to ever have a family, I need to think about, you know, how I can afford to do that. And so I thought, okay, maybe I'll do something on my own. And then he, his name is Josh, was introduced to me and he had also been really curious and interested in in meditation and spirituality. So we connected on, on that level and it was a fast and beautiful friendship. And as these pop-up events started to, to get more notorious, we started seeing people come back just to hang out with the people that they had met last time. You know, they're like, I can't go anywhere and talk about this sort of stuff with anyone else. And, you know, my friends don't really want to talk about meditation. They just want to go and get drunk. But I met, you know, these really cool, you know, girls and I want to hang out with them. So we started to see a little bit of a community form. And Josh initially didn't want to open a studio. He, he's the smart one out of both of us. He was like, I don't think it makes financial sense. And we're going into debt and we don't really have much money coming in. But I was like, look, dude, there's like no one in Australia is doing this. No one, you know, and this is growing. And we knew, I knew that the trajectory of meditation globally was heading in a, in a direction where it was going to get widespread support. So I, you know, convinced him to, to open this studio and he, for all his wisdom, was really excited by the end of it. And, and we opened it in the back of this small psycholo- psychology studio and we had maybe a thousand, not even maybe like 600 square feet, 600 square feet was, was how big this studio was. And we got all our friends to pitch in. Someone gave us, they interior de- decorated the place. If we did a workshop at their work, another friend donated flowers. The biggest investment were these chairs that were meditation chairs that cost like $500 each. But I knew they looked cool and people would talk about them a lot. So that became our biggest investment. And then we found some really amazing teachers. And then we kicked it off in in 2015. And what a journey.
So talk about some of the lessons you learned from running a meditation studio. Check your ego was one. Mm -hmm. I learned very quickly that my ego loved a lot of attention. If you're a meditation teacher, as best as you can, try to hire someone to, to be the CEO. Don't try to do both. I was doing both at one time and, and I fried myself and I experienced burnout. I would switch between teaching a meditation class, then going and interviewing people, then worrying about this and worrying about that and going back to a meditation class. I think also be really clear on your why, which is not just a business philosophy, but probably a life philosophy. If you have a very strong and clear reasoning as to why you're doing what you're doing, you can ride out the difficult times. You know, there'll always be something there to help you on those on that on that journey. And then don't be greedy is the last thing. We never took investment because we wanted to own the whole company. And that caused us to burn out. And eventually we went separate ways, Josh and I. And it was all very amicable and, and great. But part of that was because we weren't making any money, you know, for a long period of time. All the money we were making was just going back into the business and it took its toll on us for sure. How are you making your ends meet if you guys weren't making, or you mean after the salaries, the meager salaries that you were taking? Yeah. I mean, we were taking very little from the business. I was doing lots of privates. I was doing corporate events. I was still teaching yoga on the side. I would consult marketing on, on projects. I would just find money wherever I could. To be honest, there wasn't, there was no rhyme or reason. I was just doing a lot. You know, for sure. And so eventually open expressed interest in acquiring you. Is that was that before the pandemic? Yeah. So once Josh had left, I I took on A Space by myself individually and and had Did you have to pay Josh out when he left? Well, yes. Yeah, there was that involved. It's funny, I had a vision for open. That that revolved around it becoming a meditation, sorry, an educational platform, not a meditation platform, because there was a lot of that already. I had this idea that people wanted to learn and grow, and they wanted to know how to navigate their life. That was really why a lot of people were coming to 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 us. They're like, "How can meditation help me get through this relationship? How can meditation help me navigate grief? How can meditation help me do this, do that?" And there is such a vast amount of Buddhist wisdom that a lot of people can't access because for whatever reason, it doesn't speak to them or who, whoever is delivering it doesn't connect with them, you know? And so I had this idea of turning a space into an educational platform and I had some pretty good traction, you know, with our business. The framework was there. People saw that there was plenty of assets left in the business and I moved to New York for like, I think, five months in 2017. And I started having this dream of moving to New York and launching this platform because New York really you know, healed me at the end of a, a relationship. And in 2020, I, I started, 2019, I started fundraising for A-Space. I found partners that were helping me in that process. And I found investors and we were about to do it. In February 2020, February 9th, 2020, I told my girlfriend, I'm like, okay, I'll be back. I'm going to go close everything down and I'll be back in two weeks. You know, and I went back to America, Australia, started packing it up, and then the pandemic happened and everything fell apart. 
my investors pulled out. My partners weren't ready to to go into it at that time because New York was hit the hardest initially. And my world fell apart, actually, when it came to work. And it was very stressful. And three months, there was that uncertainty. And then a mutual friend introduced me to the CEO of Open, which was at that stage, a small breathwork studio in San Francisco. And he just said, hey, help them out. Help them out with some ideas and you know just consult. And me and me and Ride, the CEO, were, were chatting for a little bit, and I was helping them out for a period of time. And then I we both kind of realized we loved working with each other, and we were both trying to do the same thing. And for them, breath work was an entry point into mindfulness, and for me, mindfulness was the doorway to self actualization and self realization. And so we kind of amalgamated the two. I joined as a co-founder of, of Open. We decided to launch an app. I decided to move to LA and here I am. And your app is something that people can experience live meditation classes. What else about it makes it unique? You can experience it live and on demand. And mm-hmm. we genuinely believe like this ability to be mindful, to experience genuine presence connection and compassion can happen through many, many ways. It can happen through the body. It can happen through the mind, but it can fundamentally happen through the breath. So we have these different modalities like breath work, like meditation, and we've built a pretty unique proprietary technology that enables people to feel really connected to their friends who are practicing with them live as well as on demand. You also just published a new book still together, which came out Ironically, the same day as my book, Knowing Where to Look. (laughs) That must be good juju. (laughs) (laughs) How did that happen? Because, you know, sometimes people, you can, you you have this idea and you look for someone to publish it, or sometimes they reach out to you and they say, hey, we love what you're doing. Would you like to write something? Like how to talk about that process? The irony was that I got a book deal in 2019. It was a student that used to come to A-Space a lot. And she loved practicing with me. And she, her family, incidentally, has one of the biggest publishing houses in Australia and the UK. And they're like, hey, we think you'd be great to write a book. Would you be open? And I was like, okay, I could write a book. <laughs> That's cool. And then I started thinking about what. And the one thing I had struggled with my whole life was to feel connected. You know, as an immigrant child, feeling connection to others feeling connection to myself, feeling connection to this present moment. And so I had this idea of writing a book about connection. And that was what I got the deal on. I I brought a proposal. I'm like, it's about connection, exploring the ways we're disconnected in our life and then talking about the ways we can reconnect. And the irony was that I put off writing this book in 2019 up until I had like nine months left of my 18 months to write the book. And the nine months left was in 2020 when I was in Australia, when we were in the middle of a pandemic, when I was in lockdown and I could only leave the house for one hour a day. I had to write a book about connection. And I'm like, what are the chances? (laughs) I'm the most disconnected I've ever been. And here I am having to write a book about it. So everything I wrote was a byproduct of what I had to practice and go through. And it's rooted in Buddhist wisdom. It's rooted in some research that I did and some scientific underpinnings of human connection. 
mm. and it explores we can find a way to reconnect back with with our lives and, and with with the world around us. How are you defining success these days? Like literally today, like what does success look like for you? Yeah, I mentioned this in the book. It's it's how connected I am to my life. You know how connected I am to my body in each moment. <laughs> you know how connected I am to you, light in this conversation. How connected I am to love and spaciousness, and we call it this quality of emptiness in, in Buddhism. How connected I am to my spirituality. That really for me is success because I've gone through the roller coaster of financial success. And I know that there's a certain amount of money that one needs to feel safe. And that number is different for everyone else. But beyond that, you can have a lot of money and still be very unhappy. And I've done that too. And so now for me, it's how deeply connected I am to the things that matter the most to me in my life. And I feel like in this context, unhappiness is feeling disconnected. doesn't matter how much money you have, what your position is, how much people love you. If you feel disconnected, then that's the opposite of being successful. And, you know, this is interesting because now I want to loop it back around to childhood, right? You dancing and impersonating Michael Jackson, you said that the reason why you did that was because it made you feel connected to your body in a way that nothing else did. And it seemed like you had to go through this really dark tunnel experience, which we call normal life of trying to be successful from the outside in. And you lost that, you lost that connection. And through finding your teacher, your path, you were able to reconnect to what was truly important. And, And what's also interesting in hearing your story is almost everything that has led you to the next step, the next breadcrumb along your journey happened as a result of somebody else stepping in. So your mother helping to care for you, your daughter keeping you from potentially committing suicide, someone introducing you to your teacher, someone connecting you with Josh, someone connecting you with the co-founder of the Open Center, student connecting you with the publishing deal, like somebody, it's it's like your whole journey has been about connection. And I just think that's yeah. a really beautiful testimony to, you don't have to necessarily try to make things happen. You just follow your inner guidance, wherever it leads you. And the people who resonate with that will eventually step in and connect you to whatever that next phase of your life is supposed to be. I, I n- didn't actually look at it like that until you said that. So thank you. And and yes. And I think what the, the through line and the thread is from all those interactions was there was always a moment of surrender right before it happened. Mm. You know, I had been pushing uphill, pushing like even before a space was acquired I had been like stressing, pushing, pushing. And then I'm just like, you know what? Like I, maybe this is the end of the road for A-Space. Maybe, you know, I'll just sell it and that's it. And at that moment, someone was interested, you know, and that was it. And I remember, you know, even with my teacher, there was a moment where I was running out of money. You know, my parents couldn't give me any more. And I had been kind of living off them and living off my savings. And I had maybe $300 left in my bank account. And I was just like, this is going to last me a week. What am I going to do? And I'm just like, 
my teachers just said, just something will happen. Just let it be. And literally at the end of that week, I got a job offer to come back and, and work. And I think as I think about this now and, and you're, you're reflecting this so beautifully back to me, as I go through challenges now in my day, in my life, I'm coming back to that. It's like, where can you just let go? You know, at this moment, where, where is it that you let go? Even if it's a thought, even if it's just an idea, or even if it's just a physical releasing of your shoulders, you know, where can you let go? Well, thank you for sharing your story so generously. I think it's going to help a lot of people because I, I'm pretty sure anyone listening to this can relate to some aspect of your journey. <laughs> and I highly recommend picking up the book. It's full of really gentle wisdom. We talked about the difference in Still Together and other sort of meditation books, which typically talk about stress and all the medical benefits you get from meditating, which is, I think, becoming more and more well-known. And you wanted to talk more about which aspects of the practice? Well, I think for me, there's enough research on meditation. Like you don't need mm. me to, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I, I don't want to claim to, to be someone that can talk to you about the benefits. I think at this point, if you're listening to this podcast with a teacher such as yourself, you know there's benefit in, in meditation, right? Mm. What I am trying to reorientate people towards is perhaps like the purpose of, of the practice. And the tip of the iceberg for me is stress relief and better sleep, right? But to me, I equate that to eating an avocado and eating it with the, with the skin on and saying that it tastes great. What I'm trying to invite people to, to do is to, to peel the avocado cut it open and eat the inside. And the inside is the richness and the depth that exists once we go beyond just our limited view of this experience and this practice. And the tip of the iceberg as well is, is connection. You know, but beyond that, there's an actual path to self-liberation. There is a path to freedom. There is a path to love. There is a path to compassion and to healing and to forgiveness. And it lays beyond our limited view of what we think this practice can really give us. And I'm saying all of that not to denigrate stress relief because we need that first, right? Again, that's where we begin. But there's also this invitation, this gentle invitation to go, to go beyond that and to see what else is there for you. And if someone wants to experience you as a meditation teacher, is that available on open on the platform? Absolutely. Yeah. You can practice with me live on, on open or on demand. You can jump into our app and experience us for 14 days. It's completely free. Just find me. I'm, I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll link to all of your social media and, and uh, website, stuff like that. Thank you so much, man, for coming onto the show and, and, and for sharing. And I look forward to connecting with you again when I make it back to LA or when you come back to Mexico. No doubt, no doubt. Always a pleasure, Life. Thank you for having me, brother. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Manoj Diaz. To learn more about his platform, Open, and his book, Still Together, I would say to start with his Instagram, because he's always posting really cool stuff, you will find him at M-A-N-O-J-D-I-A-S underscore. Menage Diaz underscore. And if you're not on social media like that, you can go to his website, which is M-A-N-O-J-D-I-A-S dot com dot A-U. 
And of course, his book is available everywhere books are sold. I also put links to his Instagram and his website and his book in the show notes at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're on my site, make sure you also check out my newest book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Many of the stories in the book are drawn from my five years of sending out daily emails to my followers about inspirational things that have happened to me personally or that I've observed or just anecdotes that I've heard about from other people. And you can also subscribe to those daily emails on my website. So make sure you give yourself a few minutes to poke around and see what kind of experiences you would like to curate on there. And my final ask for you is to leave a rating or review for this podcast, which you can do really quickly by just glancing down at your phone right now and on the Apple Podcast app, Click on the name of the podcast, which is at the end of the tunnel. Scroll down past the previous episodes and you'll see a blank five stars. Just tap the one all the way on the right and you've left the rating. Thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.